Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. And I'm really excited, actually, to talk about what we're going to do today. Um, We're going to deal with the issue of hypocrisy in the church, which is such a needful, needful thing for us to talk about, because we need to reflect and ask the question, is there hypocrisy in me? And if there is, I need to root it out and deal with it right away. But we're also going to talk about the biblical concept of Jesus as the cornerstone which is a mind-blowing, eye-opening idea once you understand the significance of it prophetically and biblically. All right, let's get to it. All right, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be tonight, 1 Peter chapter 2. And what I like to do is, is just read through at least a portion of it in preparation so we can kind of get the overall, get the scripture in our minds, and then as we go through it, will uh, you know, understand it that much better. Because you ever been in a Bible study and you hear what they're saying, but you can't tell how it relates to the verses on the page? Yeah. I never want to do that. I, I mean, I really, I'm not saying it's never, I've never done it. I hope not, but I don't know. I've taught thousands of times, so it's certainly a possibility. Um, but I don't want to do that. I mean, we, we draw... Um, we draw the teaching from the word. Otherwise, it, it's what it's powerless. You know, it might be good ideas or great suggestions, but we couldn't call it a Bible study or, you know, the preaching of God's word. And that's what we're after here. So, First Peter chapter two, verse one, it says, "Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby." If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which, you, uh, to which they were also appointed. Uh, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but but now have obtained mercy. So, uh, we'll... uh, You know, it's interesting in in Peter's writings, it's difficult to find a smooth stopping point because his flow of thought just kind of, it just kind of segues naturally into the next thing. Plus he has these gigantic sentences. I mean, they're super long. And so um, good luck, you know, for the Bible teacher who wants to teach this, this section that's just a little compartmentalized section. That's probably not going to happen in this book or in a lot of books. I don't even, why bother? Let's just take what we take and let's go through it. And so here we are, second, uh, First Peter, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, therefore, <clears throat> laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he's, he's spoken to us in chapter 1 about these incredible promises of God and about our future inheritance in heaven that is incorruptible and undefiled and it does not fade away reserved in heaven for you and all these wonderful truths. And so then now um, we're, being, we're being tasked with applying salvation into our lives with that sanctification, you know. So we're to lay aside um, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, and we're to desire the milk of the word so that we can grow. So let's apply this stuff into our lives because that ultimately is the most important part of Bible study is the application. We, um, with our youth ministry, every single week we do a small group time where they get together after the study and they talk about the study. And um, we always try to focus those small group discussion, the questions they go through on application, taking the word and applying it into our lives because we gotta be doers, not hearers only. I mean, it is too easy. <laughs> To, to be the hearer but not the doer, to think that because I understand it, I'm done. But I've got to apply it. And, but man, it is, it is all about application. Now look at it. We're to lay aside all malice. The first thing is malice. Malice is an interesting word. We, we, our vocabulary is 
are, are growing when it comes to slang, but they're shrinking when it comes to actually useful words. Malice is one of those words we don't tend to see too much nowadays in common speech. But it's a desire for someone else to be harmed, to be embarrassed, or in some way to suffer. Like, I hope that guy gets this, the guy that cuts you off, the guy that, that, that whatever, you know, or, or girl for that matter. I hope this bad thing happens to them. And sort of I'm hopeful about their harm. And I want to, I don't want to paint too wide of a brush with this because it is good to want evil to stop, right? It's good to say, I hope something stops that evil from happening, but it's something else to just wish harm upon the individuals to just, I just want them to hurt. I just want them to suffer. That's different. That's malice. Malice is something we don't want in our lives. I think that the guy that says, and I've heard this before from a believer, a great guy, actually, in, in most ways, you know, as far as, uh, as, far as humans go, right? <laughs> and he says, if anybody ever breaks into his house, that guy is going to die. And I just thought to myself, how little do you value human life? That your immediate, immediate reaction, like you break into my house, I don't care if you're a 14-year-old looking for your next drug fix or, or if you're a 50-year-old man who is uh, mentally disturbed and thinks that this is his house. <laughs> I don't know what your reason is, you're going to die. I, I think that we should be hopeful that as little harm as possible happens to that person, but it's still reasonable to have self-defense and respond to self-defense in your home, but not to just be hopeful for their doom and death and destruction. I mean, I, I hope and pray for those who are persecuting the church right now, ISIS, and I pray that they get saved. And that might offend somebody. And to those who it offends, I say, you have a malice problem. That's, that's a malice issue that's going on. I don't want them to get saved. I want them to die and go to hell. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm glad God didn't look upon me and say that. Because I certainly would have ended that way. Um, so we, we need to not write people off, but, but still have a hopeful attitude, even towards those who, who, deserve, who are evil and deserve to be stopped. But still have a hopeful attitude. I, I hope that it comes out where... They can be saved and their lives can change. But it is good to want evil to stop. Um, God, I think, takes this same attitude. Ezekiel 33.11 says this. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, which is his way of emphasizing his point. When he goes, as I live, he's like, uh, dun, dun, dun. I mean, you listen to what comes next. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God sees the wicked persisting in wickedness as a total waste. Why? You get nothing and you lose everything. Just turn. I will kill you, but I don't want that to happen. I mean, God's the judge and he's just and he'll bring the judgment, but, it, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So we don't see that kind of malice in the Lord. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. So obviously, Luke 6, God doesn't have malice towards us. His desire is to keep us from suffering, even though we deserve that suffering. <laughs> I mean, that's the nature of the cross, is, is, is the opposite of malice. It's that he takes our sins upon himself. He dies for what we've done, and we go free. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus is drawing out who God is and how that applies to who we are, the application of it as being children of God. He says in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. In those three words, wow. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who sometimes don't treat you right. No, do good to those who hate you, he says. Bless those who who curse you and pray for those, not just about those, who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you, do also, you also do to them likewise. This is actually different than people go, Jesus had the same teaching as Buddha. Not even remotely close, actually. Buddha never said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. He said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And Jesus flips that into a positive. He says, and not that Jesus heard Buddha's teaching. I mean, he's obviously the creator. But, um, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. What you wish they would do, do that. Not just avoid the evil, but do the right. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
for even sinners love those who love them. Now, the typical use of the word sinners in the New Testament amongst the culture of the Jews, they would, um, they would say, you're a sinner, not meaning you have sinned, but rather it's your practice of life. You're living in a, a regular life of rebellion against God. This is, you're a sinner. You know, you're practicing it. Because um, in, in a general sense, we're all sinners, but this is the one who's still living the life of sin. So he's like, even they do that. Come on, they, they love those who love them. Don't act like loving those who love you is all that special. Like the parent who's the new parent, and maybe they're in general in life a very selfish individual, but they look at their little baby. They look at their little two-year-old, three-year-old who's just loves them. I mean, they're, they, look, they get so nourished by the, by the daddies and the mommies and the, and the I need this and you, you sustain me and I look to you and you tell me how it is and I go, okay, you know. Of course, when they're teenagers, they, you know, things change, but, <laughs> but for the time, I mean, I've, I've heard parents say, man, my, my kids are my world. They're my whole world, but I've never heard them say it about that, that about a teenager. I've only heard them say that if their kids are f- very little. I thought, wow, this is the wake-up call still coming, I think. <laughs> But it's easy to love those who love you. That's, that's natural, that's normal, that's easy. In fact, you might even say that that's a little bit selfish because it's like, hey, they treat me good, so I like it. Well, he says, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So we're to lay aside all malice, to just have this sort of merciful and gracious attitude. This doesn't mean that the Christian presents himself as a, as a doormat, necessarily, in all situations. But we don't live based off of our rights, we live based of our, off of our calling. And sure, I have a right to hit back, a right to do this, or a right to do that. But it's not about my rights. It's about my calling. What am I called to do, Lord? How do I want to honor you in this? To lay aside all malice, that, that's, that's an internal, the internal desire that, that leads to all this other stuff. <clears throat> so back to 1 Peter 2. In verse 1, he says, lay aside all malice, and then all deceit. That's the second one. All deceit. Notice, he doesn't just say, don't lie. He says to lay aside deceit. Because I think that sometimes we make a difference between lying and deceit. Like, I didn't actually tell a lie. I just kind of allowed them to believe something that was conveniently untrue for in my favor. So we're to lay aside all deceit. And what is this about? This is an integrity thing. Jesus put it this way. Let your yes be yes. What does that mean? That means that when someone hears you speak... You have built such a attitude of trust because you're just you're just an honest and integrity-filled person that they're just like, I believe you. Now, they might think you're wrong or mistaken, but they certainly don't think you're being deceitful or lying because you just have a reputation of, of being an honest and trustworthy person. This should not be a rare trait. This <laughs> just should be normal. I mean, I hear about the glory days when people would make a business deal based on a handshake. You know, and you just, you make a handshake business deal. It wasn't, it wasn't contracts and then you got lawyers looking for loopholes in the contracts. Instead, it was just a handshake. And then it, if you broke that contract, then, then the, the guy that you broke it with would tell other businessmen, yeah, you can't trust him. And now, pff, now you're not going to do business anymore. I kind of wish we were back in those days. Less contracts and more reputations. You know, and that's, that's the establishment of, of how, we, how we interact with people and how we do business and stuff. I, um, I can't see... In, with our elections coming up, I can't see voting for someone that I don't trust. And that rules out a lot of people. <laughs> I go, man, that guy's a liar. Like, every, how do you not know this? Like, he's a liar. Like, I don't, I don't trust him. I can't see voting for him. I'm going to find somebody I trust and vote for him. You know, and I, I just, more and more, uh, this year especially with the elections coming up, I just more and more am, am, am really looking at moral qualities and things like that because, because without that foundation... How do I believe anything the guy says? How do I trust anything the guy says? If I, if I can't, if I can't uh, he's just going to say this to me, and then later he says it to him, and then they do like so many of them else when they get in the office. They flop over and just start doing who knows what. And you're like, it's like you don't know what they stand for until they get into office. Like, why don't I know right now? <laughs> Let your yes be yes. What do you really stand for? Well, 
for us as Christians, what I want to do then is I want to lay aside malice, right? But I also want to lay aside all deceit and build a reputation where you are, you're just so regularly honest and full of integrity that people just believe you, that people who know you trust you. People who know you trust you because you've built that integrity as a Christian to just, just lay aside all deceit. This means that you will get yourself in trouble with the things you say because you're not going to hide the fact that you blew it here or whatever. Your boss comes into work and you were supposed to be the first one on the job, but you were half an hour late and you start feeling guilty and you're like, hey boss, I just want to let you know I was about half an hour late. I'm really sorry about that. I know that you'd want to know and I'd feel like I was deceiving you if I didn't tell you. So I'm just going to... Then the next day you're getting up and you're thinking I'll hit snooze and you're like, man, if I'm late again, I'm just going to have to tell him again so I forget that I'm going to work. And you see the, the, the total honesty thing, it makes you accountable. If you think I'll just lie and get out of it, then you're more prone to sin. I think lying is, is like a, like, you know, that, you know how they say pot's the gateway drug. Well, I think lying is like the gateway sin. It's like it ga- opens the gates to tons of other stuff. Now I can hide this and hide that and hide this and hide that and lie about this. You know, and it's just, we have to not have lying as our go-to to save face. We've just got to be honest. We've just got to be real. Just got to tell the truth. Um, let your yes be yes. It's liberating. And the truth is, you can't really have relationships with people without being honest with them. There is no real relationship when there's lies. And some people come to church and they, they're, just, they're deceitful. At, at, now, it's not everybody. It's just a few. But some people show up and they put on a Christian face because they're embarrassed about who they are. Or maybe they're just being condemned un, unnecessarily. But they put on kind of a face. And I think they should just stop and be real. They're afraid of nothing. There's nothing to fear here. You come, you're in, you're in, a, you're in a, a group of people who are admitted sinners who've been saved by the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. What are you hiding from? <laughs> so just be real. And that leads us to the next one. So malice and the lying or deceit, that leads us, it just kind of goes right into hypocrisy. That's the next thing to lay aside. Lay aside hypocrisy. Now, I do not want to assume that everyone is a hypocrite. I've heard people say, um, oh, you know, Christians are all hypocrites. And I like to respond, I'm not. I'm not. In fact, I know tons of believers who I have great relationships with, and you know what? None of them are hypocrites. I don't think the majority of believers are hypocrites. Maybe they all travel together in packs, <laughs> so that when you meet one, you meet a bunch. I don't know, maybe maybe not. So I don't want to pretend that everyone's a hypocrite, but I will say this. Anyone or any group that has strong ideals like Christianity, like those who follow Jesus, who are called to follow Christ and be like him, is going to have its hypocrites, people who aren't measuring up, but are pretending to. I'm not measuring up, but I don't pretend to. So that's, that's why I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> and that's what hypo- hypocrites, hypo- hypocrisy is. It's, it means faking or acting. I'm, I'm acting. I'm pretending to be something I'm not. And um, I, I think it's, it's funny sometimes you're watching a show or a movie or something and you realize for a moment you go, they're all just pretending, you know. <laughs> it just kind of kind of makes you laugh, you know. But that's what that is. Like we should definitely not do that when it comes to real life. Like I'm not. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to act. Um, hypocrisy breeds hypocrisy because people see it in me, so then they start to imitate it too. But if they see a genuineness and an openness in in, in you, then they'll then they'll imitate that as well. And you can you can spread uh, genuineness instead of hypocrisy. That's a great thing. But there's a huge danger in my my goal being look instead of be like look Christian instead of be Christian look righteous instead of be righteous appear this way instead of be this way sometimes you get this when people are arguing where they're no longer arguing to see what's right they're arguing to get to be right and that's kind of a hypocritical thing if you're looking you want to look something you're worried about what people think of you but if you're just worried about being something you're worried about what God thinks of you if you're just trying to look like a believer, people will drain you. They will just suck you dry because you're holding the mask up that whole time. You know, I talked to one of our uh, security guys today. I was walking down the street, heading to the main service. And I was like, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm doing all right. My spirit's good, man, in the Lord, you know. And he was just so genuine. And I was just like, I'm so grateful that someone could be like, yeah, I'm doing right. I've talked to people, believers. They go, yeah, I'm just doing lousy, man, but I'm holding on to, the, on to Jesus, you know. I've talked to people that go, I'm just, I'm going through it and I don't know what's going on. And I'm just grateful that they're real about it. Because what I've never done is just grab them and like drop kick them out of church. Like, get out of here. You're not part of this. What do you, you know, oh, we're all perfect. Plastic happy people living in our plastic steeple. That's not what it's about. 
But if you're if you're putting up that hypocrisy thing, then just coming to church is like a draining exercise because I've got to like hold the face on, you know. And so you'll want anonymity if you're not very good at the, being a hypocrite. You're not so you you can't win, right? Because you're not good at it, but you're doing it when you're so. Then it's just draining. Whereas if you're just genuine, man, you sleep better. You're more peaceful. You can have better and real relationships. You don't feel like you have to go outside of the body of Jesus to find your close friends because they won't judge you. You know, it's like, just just stop. Just stop. You're just hurting yourself if that's what's going on. The hypocrite is always worried about being found out. So they distance themselves. They just come to church and then, boop, they're gone. They wouldn't want a fellowship or anything like that because people might find out about them. But the person who just wants to be a believer, fellowship is more natural. It's going to be easier to do. Um, hypocrisy spreads and it keeps us apart. I remember one time walking uh, out in front of the church here and I saw, and it was in between services because we always are heading back and forth, right? And I'm standing out there uh, walking rather and I see on the ground a piece of litter and it just it just kind of bugs me because I'm like, there's trash and it's in front of our church and somebody, you know, there's a public area, people leave stuff all over. So I'm think, as I'm walking up to it, I'm thinking to myself and, you know, this flurry of thoughts comes through my head all at once. And the first thought was, Oh, I should probably, I should pick this up and go throw it away. And then I thought, what if somebody, because now there's people here, what if someone sees me pick it up and thinks he's just doing that to look righteous? (laughs) So then I thought, oh, but now I don't want to pick it up. And then the next thought that entered my mind was, but wait a minute. What if they think I'm not picking it up just in order to not look right? And then I thought, wait a minute. I'm not even asking God, what do you want me to do here? I'm just thinking what people will think when they see me. And it is exhausting. And so I just laughed. I bent down, picked it up, and threw it away. And I was like, whatever. This is just, it's exhausting. The funny thing is that most people aren't actually thinking about us at all. Let alone thinking specific thoughts about us like that. They just look and they're thinking like, oh, they look tired. That's all they, that's all they thought when they saw you. They weren't thinking about like, oh, whatever, your clothes or what your attitude was. Or you didn't smile enough or you smiled too much or something like that. They were thinking about whether you thought that about them. That's what they were really thinking. <laughs> but that kind of, it just, just, uh, just give up. Just give up. Just be you. And be like, look, if Jesus can accept me, then you can. And if not, then that's you. And I'm just going to be me following Jesus. And, um, and you will sleep better. The next thing uh, is also connected to hypocrisy. And it's envy. To lay aside envy. Envy is a state of ill will towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage experienced by such a person. Envy, it's, it's, um, it's like jealousy. And I think the cure for this is rather than comparing ourselves to each other, I like what, uh, what the scripture says about the Pharisees. It said, comparing themselves amongst themselves, they were not wise. <laughs> just the very act of comparing, just the, the moment that you take yourself, your life, and you compare yourself to another, you are already failing because you don't know you, you know them even less. That's, that's only two points, but I held up three fingers for some reason there, but there was a third point subtly hidden within the two, which I obviously don't need to elaborate on, but yeah, comparing the very act of comparing is just wrong. And I've, I've learned this being uh, serving a ministry with lots of other gifted people when I slowly find out over time that um, somebody who I look up to says to me that, I'm just, I'm just being honest, they, they said they were intimidated by me. And I'm like, what? I'm like so confused by that. Why were you intimidated by me? And then I'm, I'm realizing that there's just this... We, we constantly are measuring up and there's like almost a Christian version of keeping up with the Joneses or whatever, you know, where you're like trying to, I don't know, but, but rather than compare, we need to compliment. We realize not give them compliments. I mean, that's a good thing to do, of course, but rather realize we compliment each other. We're like different members of the body. You comparing yourself to another Christian is like the liver comparing itself to the little toe. They're both really important but they're pretty much both clueless about each other's usefulness. You're all parts of the body and we're uniquely different than we're supposed to be. When I first started teaching, I remember preparing a Bible study and I thought, I'm going to try to teach like Pastor Chuck because he's a a great teacher. And so I prepared the study like 
with like Chuck flavoring in it somehow. I don't know how I did this, right? And it was all in there and it was like, and I've been, I listened to so many of his studies, hundreds of his studies and stuff. So I was like, all right, I like channeled Chuck and stuff. And I get in there and I, and then I, uh, I, I preach and I share. And afterwards I go to my friend and, and I had been reading. I mean, I had to read it because I, I couldn't remember all of this, you know, this Chuck-ish flavoring that I had prepared. So I, I taught, and then afterwards I, I talked to my buddy and I was like, hey, what'd you think, you know, of the message? And he said, um, he said, oh, well, you know, uh, it was good. Um, it almost sounded like you were reading it. And he didn't have very good eyes, so he didn't realize I was. And so I said, I was reading it. And it was so weird. I, I just sat there thinking, and I thought the whole study, there were really, I mean, if you read it yourself, you'd been like, wow, that's a really good. But when I taught it, it just fell flat. It just totally fell flat. And I'm going, what was that I did, that I did wrong? And it was that the whole thing, I didn't, I didn't realize at the time, but I was just trying to be like somebody I looked up to. Somebody I admired and someone who I thought God used greatly, and I was trying to be like them. And so I gave up. I quit. I said, you know what? I'm not Pastor Chuck. I'm me. I'm unique. I'm different than other teachers. I'm different than other Christians. And I'm just going to be me. I'm going to teach to the best of my ability. And if people don't like it, then they'll stop asking me to teach. And that was so liberating. Because now, when I see other teachers and other pastors, and I hear them share, and I go, oh, wow, that was great. I'm not like, all, I feel offended or bothered or challenged somehow by that, that teaching person. That really, I'm just like, hey, you want to come teach on my pulpit sometime? Because that was great. And I think, like, it's awesome when people hear other voices than mine, because I am just sort of this, I'm just one part. I'm not the whole thing, you know. And um, this is a great idea. Instead of envy and comparing, I want to compliment David and Saul are a great example of this. David loved Saul. Saul found David to be intimidating. David would have thrown himself before a spear for Saul, no pun intended. <laughs> he would have done this to save Saul. He would, have, he would have given his own life up. God, not David. God called David to be the next king. It was Saul with his rebellion and part of his envy and jealousy and stuff like that that hears about reports of David and people appreciating David and then he gets mad and he can't appreciate David. And he's not like, oh man, oh, David's awesome. He, I should be just giving him more and more responsibilities because he's, and it would have been this natural shift between the two kings of Israel, you know, instead of this violent rebellion and all this craziness that went on between the two of them. Saul hated David. David loved Saul. Jonathan. Loved David. Now, Jonathan's the guy who didn't become king, and, and David did. Yet, Jonathan loved him because Jonathan was a humble guy who was like, Lord, whatever you want, I want that. I don't need this or that or this or that. Like, wow, look at that guy loves you, and he's serving. He was able to come alongside someone, and he, he even tells at one point, he goes, I know God's going to make you the king. And he was totally cool with it. That's when you know your envy is, is under control, is when you don't mind if they get what you were hoping you would get. You're like, all right, praise the Lord. That's cool. God bless you. That's a really great thing. Envy causes you to be untrusting and unloving towards those you should really be partnering with, probably serving the Lord with. Saul should be partnering with David, but instead he's fearful of David. He tries to kill David. He chases David down. Who loses out? All of Israel. This great military leader who could be delivering them from the Philistines and from the oppression of the enemy, but instead the armies of Israel are chasing him. And he evades them because he, he's got skills. And more importantly, because he's got the Lord. But yeah, I mean, they should have been partnering together, but instead it was like they were competing. So just refuse to compete with people. Just refuse to compete. Forget envy. Forget that. Like, wow. Yeah, wow. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. I love our, our pastor. Pastor Gary is totally like this. He's totally like this. There's just no worry about his own position or his own role or anything like that. He's not worried about his authority and things like that because he knows it's secure. It's, we worry about that stuff for no reason. He'll be at the pulpit and he'll think of something and he'll, he'll like ask somebody else in the room who knows more about it than him. He's like, da, da, da. And he'll go, hey, is that right? What yeah. yeah. I mean, he'll just, there's, just, there's just none of that fake, you know, worries and stuff like that. So he's a great example of this. Um, so we're lay aside all envy. And envy, I think, is directly connected to the next thing on the list. You see a flow here. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. That word evil speaking, it sounds like a general term for all, all sort of saying bad things. But it's specifically slander. It's talking about slander. When you're speaking about or negatively about someone or to somebody. So when I'm slandering somebody, I'm evil speaking against them. Um, 
Now, I can't embrace sin and never say anything bad about anybody because I have to say, like, ISIS, you're, you're murderers. You're murderers. You're evil, demonic murderers. This is, this is sick, and you need to be stopped. Um, but slander has to do with the idea of I want to uh, I want to I want to tear down their character and maybe tear down their reputation amongst others and maybe make myself feel better by making them seem diminished. That's what slander tends to do. I think that envy leads to slander because I sort of feel bad. I remember seeing a guitar player I know who heard. Um, uh, Dennis Agajanian, who is uh, an amazing guitar player, the guy's the fastest flat picker on the on the planet. I mean, at least as far as the Guinness World, Be- World Book of Records is concerned, <laughs> which is which is something. I mean, I'm not in there for anything, and most people are in there for really lame things that you're like, well, you, well, you stood in one place for that long. You're like, <laughs> you're like, okay, um, I do that at Disneyland now. And but the the he's a fastest flat picker playing the guitar, just doing amazing stuff. And I remember hearing a friend of mine who's a guitar player, who's a good guitar player, really good, better than I was ever. And uh, and he's like, oh, that's just gimmicky. I could do that. And I looked at him and I was like, no, you can't. <laughs> I play guitar, you play guitar, and we both know you can't do that. So the thought was, why would he be tearing him down? Why would he be diminishing what this guy does? Because he's on stage. And I want to be on stage. Because he does something, and I feel like what he does isn't as I worked hard, and I feel like mine's better. And so I'm, I'm feeling, you know, envy, jealousy. So it becomes slander. So I, back, so I bash this guy and what he does. We have to be careful about how quickly and easily we bash individuals. Um, I'm all about bashing ideas. Bad ideas should be bashed. But individuals, I want to try to be careful, try to be gracious, try to, try to be cautious. The time I think it's appropriate to call out individuals is when they're leaders and they're leading groups of people in bad directions. Then you've got to call them out for the sake of the people following them. So I think it's okay to call out um, Joseph Smith, the, the founder of the Mormon church. or It's okay to, to call out teachers who are missing it when it comes to the word of God. I don't mind saying something about Joel Osteen's teaching because he's influencing so many people and there's something missing from his teaching. There's something very important that's missing. You know, so I don't mind calling out individuals like that. But, but that's, see, that's an act of love for the masses that are being impacted by those people. It's not just an act of anger towards the guy. And that's what we want to avoid. Check your heart from the overflow of the heart to mouth speak. So check your heart and just see, is, is my casual comment negatively about these individuals, is this, is this a, a godly thing or an ungodly thing? And it really, it does take wisdom. But I think if we're willing to just, just stop and ask, then we'll know how to proceed. So then it goes on in First uh, Peter here. It says in verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 2, As newborn babes, or babies, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As newborn babies. Now, we talked in chapter 1 about the doctrine of what it means to be born again. So he's connecting it to this, right? We're, we're born again, and when we're born again, we have immediate needs that are different than the needs we had when we were in the womb, so to speak. The baby comes out of the womb, and that baby has one particular desire, milk. One of the first things that happens is they immediately try to feed the child. Let's get this baby some milk and feed this baby. After they're born, they immediately begin craving and desiring milk. And of course, it's very important to have that initial connection between mom and baby where they immediately begin feeding so that it actually creates a long-term relationship that works there. It's important to, to start that right away. So I've been told, haven't actually gone through that myself. Um, so, I'm, so I'm leaning on the expertise of others. But we as newborn babies, we're, we're born again. We have a new birth in Christ, but we also have these new fresh desires and needs. And it's very important that you immediately start, and I don't, please don't take this the wrong way, start like suckling on the word of God. That I immediately begin to take in the scriptures, just like it's the milk, just bring it in, bring it in. It's so neat. Um, when you look at the early church, how much they loved the word. Acts 2.42, kind of our, our little capsulized, this is what the church does. In Acts 2.42 it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And the first one on the list there is the apostles' doctrine, or they sat under the teaching of the apostles. Now we have that teaching in our New Testament. And there, of course, they were teaching about the Old Testament as well. So you've got the Old and New Testament is what the church is all over. All just They're just enjoying it and taking it in. This is super important for us. Throughout the Old Testament, we have revivals. You know, one of the common denominators in all these revivals, the word. Josiah finds the word of God. He reads it, revival. Ezekiel reads the word of God to the people, has the, the priest explaining what it means to them, making the sense of it, revival. Just over and over again, Hezekiah, revival. When, when, there's, when, there's, when the word of God is brought and the people take it in in mass, just large quantities of the scriptures in their lives, revival. And isn't that true in your life? Isn't it true in your life that the times where you're just like, man, I was going from Bible study to Bible study to Bible study. I was just like, I was just opening the word and I was like, forget the TV, forget the radio. I'm just listening to the Bible right now that you're just growing in Christ. So we are to, according to this passage, to apply it, to desire the word like that. The way babies desire milk, I should be desiring the word. To just continue in it. To simply just listen to the Bible. Which is amazing. I mean, nowadays, I've got a phone that has apps on it that will read the Bible to me in multiple translations. That's amazing. For those of us who remember the days before cell phones, I mean, I am, with this one device, I am richer than most of the kings that have ever existed on earth. They would have marveled that I had a little talking box that would give me God's word whenever I wanted. Just absolutely marveled. And Angry Birds and stuff like that, of course, is on there as well. <laughs> Not so important, but pretty, pretty impressive, though. <laughs> so I'm simply to listen to the Word of God or simply to read it. Um, some people have major roadblocks between them and reading the Word of God. Sometimes they say things like this, I'm not a reader. And I, I find that funny because to me, I would have said the same thing years ago. I'm not a reader. But you know what? Something changed in me. You see, I started reading. And I found out that the difference between readers and not readers is reading. <laughs> it's not some DNA trait that you're born with that forces you to read whether you like it or not. Or that means you can't read whether you like it or not. I mean, we, many of us as believers, we read because it's good for us. There's times where you just read because you should. Not because there's just this deep desire necessarily for just reading itself. But once you start, it, it's like um, one runner said, the hardest thing about running marathons was getting his shoes on. You know, once you just get started, just open the Bible, just start reading. That's the hard part. The rest is easy. So reading the word, also studying it, just like in Acts 2.42, they sat under the teaching of the apostles. God has, in Ephesians, it talks about this, how God has appointed teachers in the church to explain the word. Now, those teachers do not take authority over the word. They just are gifted at explaining it so that the people of God can take it in better and understand it better. And so it's good to have teachers. And can I say this? He's appointed teachers, plural. There's an S there. It's really healthy if you have more than one teacher that you listen to. It's really good for you. Because what if your teacher's a little off here or they tend to forget this certain thing or this certain side of things? And I, in a sense, I don't blame them because who is fully, perfectly rounded, you know? Um, but it's But we have multiple teachers. And so... We like that, you know, we have lots of Bible studies at Hosanna. There's lots of, you know, uh, pastors and teachers and people you could get fed from. And that's really healthy. It helps you to be a more rounded believer, I think. Um, I mean, and you can look online. I mean, some people are watching this video right now on YouTube and who maybe live in uh, any, anywhere in the world. Um, and that's pretty exciting that they could get all these different perspectives than what they're normally used to. I like that. But also, we're to talk about the word. This is something I feel in our culture, locally here in California, we don't do this probably as much as, as would benefit us. It would really be great if we did it more, just to talk about the Bible more. In Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 and 19, it says this, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That a regular discussion of the word of God, it was just considered normal. But a lot of things come between us just talking about the Bible. And one of them is the fear of being wrong about the Bible. 
so that we feel as though, for instance, I come with to you with hours of preparation, and hopefully everything I say doesn't need to be, I mean, it, you should check it, but it you should be able to check it and go, yeah, that was right, that was accurate, that was good, that was in context, that was this. You, should, you, you better be able to or else I'm blowing it, right? But when we're just kind of casually talking, it's easy for someone to go, doesn't the Bible say da-da-da? And then they're thinking like, what if I'm wrong? Oh no, oh no, I'm a horrible person. And they're embarrassed and then now they don't think I'm spiritual. Oh, but you never were anyway, so what are you worried about? <laughs> People probably think we're all more spiritual than we are in the first place. But but you know, I mean, we get nervous. We just get nervous. And I, I just want to say, at least for our sakes, if you're around me and you're like, doesn't the Bible say da-da-da? And I'm like, no, I mean, because that's my job, right? I studied the Bible. And I'm like, no, it doesn't actually say that. That's That was in, you know, the Quran or something. Um, <laughs> you don't need to be all embarrassed and feeling like you're somehow a failure as a Christian or something. I certainly don't feel that. And we need to be allowing people to talk, allowing people to have good ideas, bad ideas, right ideas, wrong ideas, and share with them and banter back and forth. And it's okay to just, you know, when you're sitting with people eating to go, hey, I was reading the Word and I read this, da-da-da. And you didn't teach them a whole Bible study. You're just talking about the word. Because this is hugely edifying in our lives. It gets, keeps us focused on Christ. It's a real blessing. And we sort of have to relearn the spiritual language because there was a, I don't know, kind of a mentality that we've had for a long time now, at least where we live, which is that if you randomly bring up spiritual things, you're somehow being preachy and inappropriate. And that's certainly not true. It's certainly not true. In fact... I don't think preachy should be used in a negative sense. I think preachy is good. <laughs> now, you could be bad at being preachy, but, but I think in general, the idea, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, if I go up to someone and say, hey, man, I just want to encourage you in the Lord. And you just offer them some encouragement. That's good. And if they needed rebuke and the Lord gave you the wisdom and you checked your heart first and you, and you offered it, then that's a good thing too. But we should just try to incorporate the Bible into our conversations. So um, what I'd like to do with you guys, since we're going to talk about the Bible as our mother's milk, is um, turn to Psalm 119. And we're going to just plow through several verses of this psalm. Sorry, I did not put them in order. Sort of in order. But look at Psalm 119. And um, notice this, that the Bible is the most amazing thing I think we've got on earth. It is, it is the most amazing book, hands down. But, and, and prophecy shows that. And then you could study the Bible and learn all the doctrines and stuff. But the Bible is not purely scholastic. So the purpose of the Bible is not purely to educate me. It has a lot of other functions in my, in my Christian life. Just like mother's milk does. Mom's milk is the best milk. And I remember years ago, the news and media, they were promoting this idea that formula was better than the, than the milk that came from mom. And I just remember as a Christian, in my Christian worldview, kind of going like, how is that possible? That formula is better than what comes from mom. Unless there's something wrong with, you know, the mother's body that's, that's harming the milk or she's like, you know, snorting cocaine or something, obviously, then it's a bad idea. But that's because something is not functioning properly. Here we've got God's design. You know what I mean? He designed this amazingly. Like, this, is, this has got to be the right way to do it. And sure enough, some few years go by and the same news reporters come on and go, breaking news, it turns out mom's milk is better. <laughs> they just like breaking news. It doesn't matter exactly how true it is. They just want it to break. It needs to break every hour on the hour. It's got to have breaking news. Well, um, the Bible is that mother's milk for us. It is the best thing for us. And it, and it brings us nutrition in so many ways. So Psalm 119, it says in verse, um, well, I'll start in verse 25 here. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. My soul clings to the dust. Think of that description of, of how, what the author was going through at the time. My soul is just clinging to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Bring new life and fresh life. How? Through your word. Revival comes through the word. Verse 28, three more verses down, says, My soul melts from heaviness, so feeling stressed, burdened, strengthen me according to your word. Notice that God doesn't always take my trials away. Sometimes he just gives me strength, so I will be strong enough for the trial. Sometimes my prayer is, Lord, please make this stop. But actually, to be honest, more often my prayer is, Lord, make my shoulders more broad, make my heart bigger, so that I can handle this thing that's going, that I'm going through. 
because I, I see our current tri trials as preparation for even greater things to come. And they typically, at least they typically are. Um, we want to be ready for that stuff to come. And, and when I hit a trial and I'm like, this is too big for me, Lord, so make me bigger. <laughs> you know? Give me the strength. Strengthen me according to your word. And when you're in the time of trial, dig in the scriptures so that you might be comforted. Just read. Just read and read and read. And I've received comfort where it's like, I don't even know exactly where this comfort's from. I'm just reading the Bible. And nothing I read in particular spoke to what I was going through, but I just got comforted. I just got strengthened. I just got helped by his word. Verse 50, verse 50, speaking of comfort, he says, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. I go back to the words, remember the words of comfort that God has given me, those promises, those truths, those wonderful and real things. I go back to that. Um, verse 98, verse 98, Psalm 119, it says, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. Notice he is not boasting about how genius he is. He's like, these people are smarter than me. But I got more than them, because I just trust what you said. You think formula's better now. But that, I don't know. I mean, God seems to, based on, you know... God's creation of the everything that it would seem that mom's milk would be better. Sure enough, you're wiser than them because you just do what the scripture said. There is now, I think, for kids in college, this, this statement that I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. Yeah. Be, now, I'm not here dogging teachers as a group, but in college, there are those professors, I know I experienced it, who just attack Christianity, and they say the craziest stuff. What's weird about the attacks on Christianity is they almost always attack a fake version of Christianity. Hey, we don't believe that. We don't preach that. Like, for, like, and, and it's casual. You really got to listen to catch it. They go, yeah, well, if you believe the Bible, you believe that snakes and donkeys talk. And I'm like, okay, his testimonies are my meditation. So I know that in the scripture, there is an account of a talking snake. And there is one account of a donkey talking, both of them briefly, and it was supernaturally, um, you know, occasioned. It happened because of some supernatural event, which means that snakes and donkeys don't talk. But you want me to think that the Bible teaches that snakes and donkeys are two unique animals in all the animal kingdom that can just talk whenever they want. You have like a Shrek theology, and I have like a biblical theology. What you actually hate about Christianity is your really bad version of it. But you don't hate Christianity because you don't even know Christianity. How, how is it that I understand more than my, the ancients or more than these teachers of mine? Because I've just read the Bible. So then I'm not fooled. And we've got to be, we've got to be people of the word. I mean, I've heard historians say, I, one time I heard a, um, on the History Channel, um, which is, of course, always, always only perfectly truth, truthful stuff on there. But it's, it's history, and it's a history channel. So it's not like they're a for-profit organization or anything. But, um, <laughs> but I remember hearing they interviewed a liberal um, historian. I, actually, I think he was a liberal theologian. He wasn't a historian. And they asked him about the, res not, not the resurrection, excuse me, the, uh, the story of Jesus walking on the water. And he goes on to explain it. And, and he says, well, you know, I think what probably happened is, and here's his story. Now, those of you who read the Bible, you cannot be tricked by what I'm about to share with you. But those who don't have the word of God as their meditation, they may very well fall right into it. So he says this. Well, you know, the story is that Jesus came walking out on the water to the, to the disciples. But I think that, you know, being, you know in, in Israel, there are desert regions. And I think that it was very possible that this was a mirage that made it look as though Jesus was walking on water like he was walking out on a lake to the, to the apostles. And then, cut, next scene, blow up another piece of the Bible with some other quote, right? No, even consider, it's as though the producer of the, of the History Channel thing didn't even stop to read the passage or think about what the guy said. But his testimonies are my meditation as they are yours. And there's a few problems with this. One, it doesn't match, well, the archaeology. Jesus was walking on the water in Galilee, which is not a desert. It's a grassy, hilly region that's actually below sea level, and it's 
it's plenteous. There's, they fish there and everything like that. The disciples were not standing around in the desert. They were in a boat. I don't think they were confused about their location. They lived in Galilee, and they're sitting there in their family company, their family fishing boat, fishing or, you know, well, well, not fishing at this point, trying to row across to get to the other side, going to the Gadarenes and stuff like that. So you read about this and you're like, well, wait a minute, there's another problem. When Peter gets to the boat, or Jesus gets to the boat, there's waves. Okay, what were those? I don't know, like sand dunes moving a little faster than normal. And there's waves, and Jesus walks up to them, and they receive him into the boat. But before that happens, something really peculiar takes place. Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, let, call me out to, on, the, on the water as well. So Peter gets out. He walks on. But that's easy, right? Because it's just sand. He's just walking on a mirage too in their boat that they didn't realize was stuck, even though they were fighting the waves. But then, Peter hits a patch of quicksand, apparently, because he just sinks into the water and starts shouting for Jesus. Jesus grabs him, pulls him out, they get into the boat, and then they get to the other side. But, I mean, if you just read the passage, you're like, this is just the most contrived, ridiculous, like, how are you a theologian or a historian? You don't know the geography, you don't know the location, you don't even know the story you're debunking. But yet, so many times, you know. So we could be wiser than just by reading the scriptures, man. Just read the word. It will make you so smart in, in the right ways, too. Jesus said this in John 17. He said, um, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So this is the, the vessel or the avenue of our sanctification. It comes through, through the word. So as I just devote time to the scriptures, I get sanctified. It is not enough to let me slowly teach you through the Bible or let Pastor Gary slowly teach you through the Bible. We've got to just be people of the word. We really do. For your sake. For your sake. It's not an issue of your salvation. It's just, it's just what's smart. <laughs> it's just what's wise. Um, so, okay. <clears throat> With the time we have left, I would like to... Um, hmm, I'd like to push on a little bit. Let's do First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That's Jesus being referred to there. Therefore, you who be- to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed, or they also were appointed. Um, There's two different things in this analogy that we're given between us and Jesus, right? We are the living stones, and he's the chief cornerstone. The context is is the building of a temple, is that we're a a royal house and a holy priesthood and all this. We're we're a temple. The... um, the chosen by God and precious, the idea here is that God has chosen you, you are precious, but when it's, when it's referring to stones, what they would do is they would, at the quarry, at the rock quarry, they'd shape the stones for the temple, and they had them they had to all be shaped to specific dimensions to fit the stones around them. So it wasn't like now where you have bricks and they're all identically the same size, and you just put mortar between them. They had much larger stones, and they shaped them to fit a certain spot, then they had those measurements, so they shaped the next one and shaped the next one. So they're all shaped to a purpose. Well, then they're sent over to the temple where they're placed because there wasn't supposed to be the sound of any tools at the temple site. So they just would shape them at the quarry, send them up. We're chosen by God and precious just as they are chosen for their purpose. We too are chosen for a purpose, just as we talked earlier, not to envy, not to compare, but to complement one another. Is that You have unique gifts. It is wonderful that we don't all have the same gifts because we would be a radically messed up church. We desperately need to have different gifts or we don't do it right. If all of us were teachers, (laughs) nothing would ever happen. (laughs) Nothing would ever get done. Nothing would certainly ever be organized. (laughs) Um, No, but we all have unique and different gifts and that's a good thing and we desperately need to be different. We're chosen and unique. You are also uniquely shaped for your part. So rather than think, oh, I wish I had this gift or I wish I had that gift, you should be asking yourself, what am I good at? Let me help the church in that. Let me just assist wherever I'm at, whatever I'm at. Um, And you probably underestimate your own gift. You probably do. It's just a natural thing to do. Um, 
But, uh, but I say engage in your gift and serve. And don't worry about estimating your gift at all. Just worry about being faithful with whatever God's given you. And um, So we're chosen by God and precious for our unique part. And we're joined together with other believers. And the stones had to be put together or they'd be useless. I mean, you, you can't work apart. You've got to work in the group, in the community, with the church. So we don't isolate. Like Proverbs 18.1 says, the man who isolates himself uh, is... Uh, uh, seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. That I don't want to do that. I don't want to isolate myself. I want to be with, with the body. Then the second part of the analogy is that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And there's the chief cornerstone is, this term could be used for one of two different things. Either like at the top of an archway, the capstone that was up at the top of the arch, it's a little different than the other stones. Or it could also be used literally referring to a giant stone that was in the corner of the temple. I think it's referring to the one in the corner of the temple. Either one gives you the same analogy, though. But what they do is they build the stones, and they had to fit with each other. So we've got to fit with other believers. Our local church especially really work to just be plugged into the local group of Christians around you, you know, whether that's in your workplace or at the fellowship you're at. But then each of those stones is sort of shaped to fit with the stones around it. But ultimately, the final stone is the cornerstone that slides in, and all the other stones are ultimately shaped to fit in with it. And that's why it's like the chief. It's like the master stone, you know. They all fit with the cornerstone. They all come together in this one thing. And we too, as we come together to each, with each other, we're ultimately coming together in Christ. We're ultimately being shaped to be part of Christ. And we then are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And did you know that that comes in two senses? We are in one sense the temple of the Spirit individually. But the scripture also says you, plural, are the temple, singular, of the Holy Spirit. That as a, as a group, we are the temple of the Spirit. That God dwells in us as a, as a community in a great way, which is different than just as an individual. So we're meant to be, that's why we say the church isn't the building. I mean, we go to church, but really, until we go there, there's no church there. I mean, when we get here, now there's a church here. And if we all went to like In-N-Out, now the church is at In-N-Out, <laughs> which might not be such a bad idea. <clears throat> So um, there was a story, a Jewish story, about the, the building of the temple, and it went, and some of you are familiar with this, but it went like this, that, that at the quarry they shaped the cornerstone, and it didn't really fit with the other stones. They shipped it up ahead of time, but the builders saw the, the, the cornerstone, they thought, this doesn't fit with what we're doing right now, so they just rolled it downhill, dunk, 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 down to the valley. And later on, they sent word, hey, we're ready, send up the cornerstone, and the people from the quarry said, hey, we already did. And they're like, what? So they check the records and they're like, well, there was that one big old stone that we just kind of threw down the hill. So then they look and they go, whoa, that's, that's it. And they get it and they put it into the temple. And then we have this scripture that's quoted by Peter here referring to Jesus. It's Psalm 118 verse 22 and it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And we have here the two comings of Christ and his first coming rejected by the builders, rejected by the leaders of Israel. They weren't ready for him. They didn't get the full picture. But there will come a second coming, and it is second coming. There's going to be a great revival in the Jewish people, and there will be a reception of Christ, just like and like Stephen in his in his uh, his preachment in Acts chapter seven, where he's like, "Hey, you guys rejected this guy the first time, received him the second time. This guy the first time, received him the second time." I mean, so you have like Jephthah, you've got Moses, you've got all these guys that when they first were revealed to Israel, they rejected them. Second time around, then they were received. And so I'm David. You know, you, you just got story after story of these guys that were rejected and then received. And he says, "And so you've done this to Christ." The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And they stumble at him. He quotes Isaiah 8.14. They stumble at Christ because he is also a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. And Jesus will invoke either that faith response or that stumble response. Typically, the, um, the Jewish people in particular would stumble or have faith. The Greeks would stumble for a different reason because they want wisdom. They're like, oh, I don't, that doesn't fit my way of thinking. They, they thought they were too smart. You know, and then um, and then the Jews it didn't it didn't fit their religious ideals that they had, and so we have the the two the, the Greeks seek wisdom, but the Jews look for a sign. You know, like show us the sign, show us proof, and yet he showed them sign after sign, and they responded by going, "Well, will you show us a sign?" And so it just showed that there was a, a blindness in part yeah, for the time. So what I want us to just kind of close on is this idea: the description is of us being the temple, and we just we just got to remember. We, the body of Christ, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This was such an important idea, but it was easily lost by the people of God when Paul wrote to Corinth 
and he says, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because he's like, if you get this one idea, then you wouldn't even be doing the stuff you're doing right now. You wouldn't have this carnal issue going on if you just really got it, that you're the temple of the Spirit. You can pray. You can worship. You can gather together. You can speak in the name of Christ. You can declare his truth to the world. You can, you can reach out to people. You are, you are the body of Jesus. Together, we are his people. And then he goes on. I wish we had time today to get into it, but we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light and his marvelous light. We have been called and we are, um, we're, we're amazing, but not, not of ourselves, but of God that he has chosen these, these, these vessels to glorify himself. Amazing. And if you remember this, you, it will get so many other things right in your, just your daily life that you remember. I mean, tomorrow when you wake up, I pray you start your day by saying, you know what? I'm, I'm part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our calling in Christ to not only do things for you, but to simply be for you. Simply be believers and simply be filled with you, with the Holy Spirit, with, the, with, with you. And God, we pray for more of you. We pray that you'd help us to get into our hearts and minds what it means to just, to just be yours. To be filled with the Spirit of God. To be a dwelling place of God. To declare your praises simply by being who we are in Christ. Lord, let us remember that, that it is not just about the tasks we accomplish for you, but it is about our relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Mike Winger, and thank you for thinking biblically with me today. Next week, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter, and we'll talk about the priesthood of believers, a really interesting concept uh, that we'll begin to unwrap as we're continuing our Bible study. Until then, don't forget to check the context.